Welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast with your host, Michael Sherlock. We all have potential, but sometimes we need inspiration to get us to our peak performance. Whether you are starting out in your career, ready to move up the corporate ladder, or taking the leap into entrepreneurship, Michael's guests provide powerful tools and resources to shock your potential. Shock Your Potential is a global professional development training company committed to your unique journey. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and download our free Shock Your Potential app today. Listen in to today's expert. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. I am your host, Michael Sherlock, and all month long, Artistic August is helping us to unleash maybe the artist within ourselves or our appreciation for art, or just a better understanding of how art can help us grow personally and professionally. And my guest today, we're going to talk about her business and uh, how that helps you on the professional side. We're also going to talk about her book. And her book is not only a, you know, a beautiful work of art in and of itself, but it's also a true story. And as you hear her story and, and a little bit about her background. Not only it, it's gonna probably shock you a couple of the, the elements to it, but I'm hoping that it'll also provoke you to think about your own life and where you are right now. And that's the past and the present and the future and really say, you know, what kind of questions should I be asking myself to continue to move myself forward? So the best seats that uh, Lisa Cohn ever had at Madison Square Garden we're at her mother's mass wedding. Now there's more on that, I'll tell you in a minute. The best cocaine she ever had was from her father's friend who was a judge. Now, if that didn't get your attention, then uh, you might as well turn us off because uh, <laughs> you're not gonna pay attention anyway, but I know you don't want to. So Lisa's an award-winning author of her book, To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence and The Power of Thought Leadership also. She's an accomplished leadership consultant, an executive coach, a keynote speaker. She has an incredible strong business background and uh, she does that really through her creativity. She earned a BA in psychology for, from uh, Cornell and her MBA from Columbia University Executive Program. And you guys know me, psychology is like the heart of everything I do. So I know that she brings that with her as well to her clients, as well as to her writing. She's taught as an adjunct professor at Columbia University and New York University Stern School of Business. Now that is lofty. And she brings up to others the tools, mind shifts and practices she's found that have helped her heal and thrive. So as you learn a little, little bit more about her story and you might find other uh, elements of her story that might you know, spark something in you, we know how important that uh, past traumas are healed in us in order to not let us just survive, but to thrive and to help us find hope and forgiveness. And she's found a way to let that into her life. Now she says she's a native New Yorker. In fact, she knows how to do the Jets uh, little cheer, I know, but she's living in Wayne, Pennsylvania. So uh, she she's a, you know, she's a little bit out of her element, but I know she can handle it there. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I know I, I spilled the secret, you know, how to do the Jets chair, but. <laughs> That's okay. I'm the 12th man with the Seahawks. So it's, it's all good. <laughs> so obviously you have an incredible story and I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start with a little bit of, you know, your backstory in your book, or if you want to start with, you know, telling us about your business, I'm going to let you decide, but, you know, I really like to have you have a chance to tell us more about who you are and what you do and how 
between your book and between your coaching, uh, your keynote speaking, how you help others to shock their potential. Shock their potential. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you, you gave my line. It's a great <laughs> line. And I can agree. If someone doesn't like that line, then they don't really want to hear my story at all. But so for those of you who might not understand the Madison Square Garden reference, my mom got married on July 1st, 1982 with 2,075 other couples. So she, I was a member of the Unification Church, Reverend Sung Min Moon, self-proclaimed Messiah from Korea. And he did have, they do have these mass weddings where thousands and thousands of people are married, often to strangers. So that's, you know, so I grew up in the Unification Church. I grew up in a religious cult. I was best friends with his kids. Uh, my mom joined when we were 10 and it was everything. It was my life. It was, there's no more intoxicating drug than having a Messiah. It's the most powerful thing I've ever felt, even if it's not wow. true. And on the other hand, well, I have a Messiah and this is what I believe. When my mom joined, she left us. She actually asked us what we should do. We were living with her, her father, my grandfather, my older brother and I, and she said, what should I do? And we said, you should leave. And so she left us with my grandfather and then a lot of stuff happened. And I was, you know, had a lot of responsibility at a very young age. And my grandfather finally had a nervous breakdown and my dad came to get us. And we then moved in into New York City in the East Village before it was funky when it was just eating. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, I lived around the Hells Angels on one side and the men's shelter on the other side. That was my neighborhood. And um, so I have a Messiah, but in my mind, I lived with my dad, Satan, in my mind, a life of sex, drugs, and squalor. And this is the childhood I had until, I, and I can tell the story later if you want, but long story short, I eventually pulled myself out of mm. the cult and then really tried to self implode, explode. I almost jumped off a bridge. I got hugely anorexic, about 40 pounds less than I am now. I did do a hell of a lot of cocaine, including with my dad and the judge who had amazing, a lot of amazing cocaine. And then got into really abusive relationships, finally hit a bottom and started to find help and heal. And that leads to my professional life. So in this whole process, I did go to Cornell. I got a degree in psychology because I like people didn't know what the heck I was doing with it. And I ended up working in advertising for a very long time in New York City, entertainment advertising. It was fun. It was exciting until I was bored. And then I went to Columbia's executive program and got my MBA, wanting to change the world still. And long story short, a couple of jobs later, I hung out a shingle in 1995 to do leadership. And I've been doing it ever since. I now know what it means. It's not in quotes. Um, <laughs> so I have a a business partner and we do leadership consulting. So we do everything from full day, multi-day, intern, interpersonal skills, customized programs, leadership programs, management programs. We do a lot, we used to do a lot of facilitated in tech team sessions. We're doing them again, right? Now that opening back up. Yes. We're really helping leadership teams and teams have tough conversations, strategic conversations, and then one-on-one -on -one with executives. You know, I, I like to say I'm the executive coach running around the C-suite of Fortune 50 companies talking about love. Yeah. <laughs> and wonderful. Right. And happiness. Um, and so that's and so, yeah, that's the that's the work. That's the work. And then the life and my life actually totally fuels how I do my work. So that's kind of the a broad picture of Lisa, who is a native New Yorker. But does <laughs> does live in Pennsylvania. Does well, and for, Pennsylvania. for those watching uh, the video, um, I do have uh, Lisa's book. She sent it to me. I've just started it. One of the comments, and I'm not going to get the quote correct, but um, I thought it was really poignant is, you know, you talk about the fact that, you know, 
it takes sometimes a long time for people who've been raised in abusive situations um, to recognize that they were in an abusive situation and to try and figure out how to not just blame yourself, you know, cause you didn't put yourself in that situation. You didn't choose that you were raised in that yet. Um, I, I know we were talking about before we, um, we started taping and, uh, and I've heard it from a lot of other people who've been raised in really traumatic situations that, you know, there's a sense of, well, somewhere this has got to be my fault. And I think that that's very uh, natural for a child to feel that way, unfortunately. I mean, natural meaning they just do, I guess, maybe not natural. Uh, it seems to be common. How's that? I don't think it's natural. I think it's common. And it makes me sad because you know, what a, what a burden to bear on top of the fact that, you know, you didn't choose it, but, um, but somewhere along the way, you at least started to find out that it wasn't your choice. It wasn't your fault, but that has long-term repercussions, which I think, you know, when you take it to the point where now you're dealing with leadership levels in, in fortune 50 companies, you still have people that are in that C-suite that have had some traumatic experiences that, that they may or may not have, have gone through that impact how they treat the other people around them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, wow, there's so much in just what you said. So I'll try and show some of the things banging in my head, but so, yeah, when it's all, you know, it is all, you know, you don't, yeah. don't know that it's supposed to be different. I knew my childhood was weird. I mean, my dad, when, you know, when I was young, was in a bar fight, got a tooth knocked out and made it into an earring and hung it from his ear. And, you know, <laughs> play with a bald head, a top hat and, e and a tooth hanging from his ear. I knew it was weird. My mom got married in Madison Square Garden with 4,000 plus people. Weird. But I, I didn't realize it was bad. And so truly what happened was as I imploded and exploded and punished myself for leaving, uh, my last page, my bottom, I got engaged with someone who drank a hell of a lot and was mean. And uh, someone in my family pointed me to Al-Anon, the 12-step program for those of us with our arms clasped around the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I literally go to my first meeting thinking, tell me if he's an alcoholic. There's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic because I'm so completely highly functional on the outside. Mm -hmm. Don't know what's going on on the inside, right? And so yeah, there's a lot of reasons. There's alcoholism all over my dad's family and addiction. My, you know, my dad drank and drugged every day of my life. And, and I was raised in a cult, right? Which mismatches with your head. Mm -hmm. That's when I first was like, oh, and then, then you become your story. Then you're like, are damaged. You are broken. You are only what happened to you. And it's a long path to get from post-traumatic, you know, stress disorder to post-traumatic growth. But and, but, and what I want to highlight, I do think it is natural for human brains to blame themselves, right? So when you're a child, even whether you have a, you know, complex traumatic life, like I did, and many people have a lot worse, or just a regular normal life, when something doesn't feel safe as a kid, which the world inherently, your parents may not be, you know, may leave for a night or whatever, when something mm -hmm. feels safe, your brain knows that if, if you think the world is unsafe, then that's scary. If you think it's you, something's wrong with you, then it's less scary, ah. right? It's less scary because it's the me and I can control it and it's all my fault and it's about me. It's not about my parents are unreliable. I had to blame myself rather than think my parents didn't love me, right? It must oh, yeah. be I'm not lovable, not they're not capable of loving, 
right? And so it's, it's a very human response, which is why I say like my world, my life is extreme, like, the, but the themes are universal because we, we, we blame ourselves, we take it on so we can control it and we all create evil twins, you know, voices in our head, saboteurs, the gremlin, whatever you want to call it, those things that literally for some of us like me, protected me. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't learned some of those massive coping behaviors with the yeah. instability, right? I had to do that to survive everything. And now they are so entirely in my way. And they may always be there as we were talking about, right? So how do I let them be there, move past them and not let them force and you know, like push me in a certain direction. And that is the conversations I have with my clients because yeah. we all have something that we had to do or had to learn or whatever that has made us too passive or too aggressive or too you know, strict or too lax or too loud or too whatever that's getting in our way now. Yeah. Uh, so interesting as you say that. And, and I'll tell you a little something is, um, uh, I actually grew up, my father um, was in Al-Anon. And uh, so he had been a very heavy drinker until my parents got me that I was adopted and much later. So my dad was 40 when they got me and he stopped drinking. Like the day that I came along, he stopped drinking and never had another drink again, but he went to AA and my mom um, would take me. She would teach, you know, she'd lead an Alan, uh, Alateen's class or an Alatot's class. And I mean, I grew up in, in, in the Al-Anon, you know, and I, I can't remember what our one was in Spokane where I grew up in, in Washington, but I mean, that's, that's where I would, I, I would also see Santa in the, uh, in the department store, but I'd see the, the, you know, Santa there that smelled like cigarettes and coffee, but uh <laughs> Yes. You know, that was such a part of my um, upbringing, yet I still grew up uh, codependent, yes. which is really interesting to me to think about that. But the reason actually I was bringing that up is that, you know, those times when I, I love how you say, you know, talking about coping be behaviors for s survival is that I finally started as an adult to really understand what the, the serenity prayer really is about. Yeah. <laughs> and when I share when I share it with people and they've never heard it, it surprises me because I've known it forever because I grew up, you know, going to Al-Anon. Um, but, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's such a big one. I mean, yeah. that's, I can't, sometimes I couldn't get past that one, you know, but I want to change it all. And so our coping mechanisms is to, you know, want to change or to hide or to run, but, you know, to courage, courage to change the things you can, you know, you, it's, it's such a balance there, the wisdom to know the difference. I'm still trying to figure that one out, but, you know, thinking, um, thinking back to, as you evolved with this and how you're using this knowledge to help other people get past some of their things that they're stuck that they might not know. It takes a lot of courage for people to say, okay, I'm going to recognize this within myself, whatever this is, because everybody's got something and whatever that is, if, if there's some element of your professional life, that's not working, it's easy to know when there's part of your personal life, not working, but a lot of that, it gets really messy in between there. And um, I'm imagining as you're working with people, as I do too, that as you start to uncover and unpeel some of those layers of the onion, you can get some really deep stuff out that people don't always expect to share with, with somebody who's come in to, you know, figure out why marketing screwing things up, you know, yeah, <laughs> can you just I fix the marketing department and I'll, then we'll be good. And I make people cry. Yeah. You know, and the reality, I, I believe, I really firmly believe this. I've experienced it. I've seen it with other people. 
is those coping mechanisms. They think they, they, they did maybe save us, or at least we believe they save us, right? Mm-hmm. They still think I'm in danger and they're saving me. So not only like the courage to change, like I can do almost anything, but when we're talking about this, I'm changing thought patterns that saved my life. Like inherently I had to know that I was evil and I was sinful and I was bad and I was broken. And like, I was taught that in so many ways and it's not safe to think and no needs, no wants. Like a lot of of that carved into my brain, you know, saved me, totally gets in my way, totally lessens my life. But when I try to shift it, I am terrified because there's parts of me that still know that they're necessary to survive right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just changing behaviors, it's changing thought patterns and assumptions and beliefs and things that I created and made up and were literally intentionally carved into my brain and a cult and all of that. It's terrifying. So, right, you know, it's easy to do an action, but when it conflicts with what you believe to be true and every part of you thinks you need to do in order to be safe, it's big stuff. And yeah, I, I do that a lot with clients. They don't expect it. And all of a sudden they're like, well, how did we get here? I'm like, yeah, because you need to look at that or you never will delegate the work or trust other people or, you know, yeah. not be over responsible or all the many sorts of, you know, be, of course you're people, of course you are, but you have to look at why before you can stop. Absolutely. All that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsor and we will be right back. Are you tired of the time and expense of going to the salon for a mani-pedi? If so, Color Street is your answer. Base, color, and top coats are blended together in an incredible polished strip that you apply yourself. The result? A brilliant salon-quality manicure in just minutes with no dry time, smudges, or streaks. These strips are 100% real nail polish, not stickers. They're flexible, can be gently stretched for a perfect fit, and last up to 10 days. I've been using them for months now and love the amazing selection of colors and styles, along with the ability to create my own unique manicure by mixing and matching. Shop today and support our sponsor, Betsy Roberts, by ordering at colorstreet.com backslash BH Roberts backslash party backslash 2095611. Again, that's colorstreet.com backslash BH Roberts backslash party backslash 2095611. Or simply click the link in our show notes. And we're back with Lisa Cohn. And um, I love how, you know, just kind of talking about the the bridge between these two, but I want to ask you a little bit about writing this book because I'm always fascinated. I've written a couple of business books. I write them like novels. I'm actually working on my novel right now, an actual novel, but I, I love talking to people who've written books, especially if it's about your life and, and something very personal. Why did you want to write the book and what has it done for you? Um, wow. So, you know, again, you only know what you know, right? You don't realize I crawl into Al-Anon. And as my brother says, when you sit in the room and you tell your story in front of hundreds of people who have these horrific situations and their jaws all drop, you're like, oh, I guess it's a little bit much, right? (laughs) And so, so many people came to me and said, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. And so, yeah, honestly, over 20 years ago, because I was starting when I was trying to get pregnant with my second child who just turned 19, 
over 20 years ago, I sat down, I'm already a coach and I'm like, I'm, I was going to write a hybrid, half self-help, half memoir. Like, here's what happened to me. Here's how it messed me up. I got better, you can too. And I got wonderful glowing rejections from so many agents, right? Well, it's an amazing story. You can't sell a hybrid book. You're not famous enough where we'll put you in Barnes and Nobles. You can't do this. So I proceeded. Oh, and then, then I got a call from an agent who said, if you write the memoir, I'll represent you, to which I, I, just, I love to out myself. I said, well, I don't want to write another glass castle to which, because I wanted to write a memoir of hope. And she said, right. you should be so lucky as to write another glass castle, which is true because it's an amazing book and Jeanette Walls is an amazing author, writer. Yeah. So I write the memoir and she can't take me on at that point and a lot of things happen and, and then the book comes out. So why did I do it? I don't know. You put something in front of me, I will absolutely do it. I will absolutely do it. My old behavior, do it, do it almost better than anyone else. And even if I kill myself in the process, right? That's my survival mechanism. Yeah. But now why I did it and what it has done, it has blown apart my personal life, all like myself, my view of life, my recovery, and my work. So before the book came out, I did not know of a um, community of cult survivors like Jen Kiaba, who you interviewed. Right, right. But I have found people who went through the same thing as me, people who were born and or raised in my situation. You know, uh, there's a ICSA, International Cultic Studies Association, an association for cult survivors. And, you know, I go there, those of us born in a race were called second gens. And I go there and I see this presentation about second gens. I go to a conference and I think the way they describe it, I'm like, that's my brain. That's every fight I've had in my marriage, right? Like that's, so now I have this understanding and I can meet a second gen from a different country and a different cult. And we are, I know him better than I know many of the people I've known for a long time. So it's absolutely, and it's cracked open my healing into deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper levels, which is hard. And amazing, right? And I've been at this for 40 years. And so it's done that. And the book has touched people. I now, I didn't used to share my story, as I said to you before we started, because literally I grew up in a cult. It would suck energy out of the room. That's all people would talk about. Now, if you Google Lisa Cohn, L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N, you see it. So I go to a new prospect that I'm trying to win business from, and they Google me, and they know I grew up in a cult. So I just, I share it which allows me to use my experiences to help my clients. So it's completely cracked open and blown up in a wonderful way. The depth that I'm going to with clients and how I can show up more authentically and help them be more powerful and authentic. And then, and then yeah, the book has also reached people who are in pain, right? The story is unique, but the themes are universal. And there, I get messages, Facebook messages, tweets, Instagram messages from strangers telling me their story, right? My, my next door neighbor who had no idea read it and she said, thank you for giving us all the courage to tell our childhood stories. Because wow. some of us are walking around with shame and feeling bad or like we're wrong. And it's not true. It's yeah. not, right? So, so yeah. it has, I, I did it because I did it because that's me, but wow, have I, you know, I, and and then, I, then I'll be quiet, like three messages we learned to share with the book. The first is that extremist situations exist. They are extremely, they're prevalent, they're all over, they're next to you, they're highly intoxicating. It's a powerful feeling and they are therefore very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Two, for anyone who feels hopeless, 
for damage beyond repair, there is hope and you are not damaged. I used, even when the book came out, I think I still thought I was damaged. Yeah. I'm not damaged. I have damage. There's a big difference. Yeah. And the third as a species, I'm from like most of us, at least way too hard on ourselves. We are mm -hmm. just mean to ourselves and we need a huge dose of self-love and self-compassion. That's pretty much all I coach my clients on. Love yourself more. Now go to yeah. your work. So those, those are my long, long winded answer to your, your, no, I think it's beautiful. And like my, uh, my friend, Barbara Kaplan says, uh, she says, we would never talk to our, uh, somebody else the way we talk to ourselves in our heads. Yep. We'd yep. never say those words out loud to another human being, but we do it to ourselves. Um, I'm really, I, I love that you shared that. And, and I hope you don't mind. It actually just sparked something in me too, that I realized is, um, so when I was, uh, I have, uh, dealt with depression. I don't want to say battled or fought or whatever. I've dealt with depression my whole life. Didn't know it. Didn't know what it was called until in my thirties. Um, but I, I made my almost first suicide attempt at 17 and, um, got as far as counting out 56, you know, uh, brown pills that were, you know, uh, you know, a medication that I was allergic to anyway, I was going to take them all. And, uh, so through my life, I had a couple other times where I was that, I was that far gone that all like to your point, I was, I wasn't literally, I wasn't on a bridge cause I'm afraid of heights, but I had other plans. <laughs> and, uh, and so when I finally started to heal from that and learn how to, to understand my, my physiological makeup and understand the chemical makeup of me. Um, and I started to learn, I used to tell my story a lot to people like, Hey, I survived, you know, not get, killing myself. And, and for a while, I think that was part of my healing process was saying it out loud, especially to people who didn't want to hear it. Cause they thought, well, you're happy all the time. Why, what do you have to be miserable about? And then one day I realized I didn't want to be defined by my story of my depression anymore. Mm -hmm. So I stopped saying anything about it. I never told anybody. And so then I went through this, you know, next 15 years of my life where I, you know, never said a thing. Only the people closest to me knew. And now, um, about a year ago, um, I put out a, uh, you know, a, a video message on, um, that was on our YouTube channel or some, through our app that we had something. And I talked about, um, how to manage, you know, how I deal with it when the depression, uh, threatens to keep coming back up. And it was the first time I'd said, I'd never said anything publicly like that. Um, but what happened was to your point, the response was enormous and people are like, oh my God, somebody who looks like they've got it all together. Like you, you're doubting yourself. You have days where you don't want to get out of bed. Like I don't understand. And it's, it reminded me that my story can help. It helps me now and it helps others, but I don't tell it the way I used to because the way I used to was still part of how I was coping coming out of it. And I'm, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, Boy, that sounds familiar. Is it's a way that this was a burden to you. This was a this was a part of something that was almost like cement shoes for you. But now that you controlled it through the narrative and writing it and putting it out there, that you control it now. It doesn't control you. I, is that fair to say? I just made big assumptions. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, you know, as as I'm saying, I do, I there is the possibility that it will, you know, mildly control me for the rest of my life, which is fine, right? right? Like my right. first, I have really even recently learned, been out for 40 years, recently learned that of course my first response is as a former cult kid, right? Yes. Deeply carved in my brain, but it doesn't control me anymore, right? As I, right. You know, I 
when it happens, I can usually watch it, right? And know that it will end soon. I have tools. I know who to call. I know what to do. I know what not what to do. I have like oodles of ways. Right? Like, so I've, I can make choices. I can be in choice, right? When, when we are flooded, this is Jill Bolt Taylor, my stroke of insight, amazing book about a brain scientist who had a stroke. She talks about the 90 second rule when you're, when you are triggered, your, you know, fight, flight, freeze response. You have 90 seconds that physiologically the hormones are coursing. 90 wow. seconds, minute and a half. After that, we do have a choice. We just still feel like we don't, right? Mm. So there's ways to use your body, your tools, with breathing, meditation, whatever. So, so yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, I, I denied my story. The only way to almost survive was to pretend I was nothing happened to me and not look at it ever. I had my, when I first crashed and burned and there was one therapist who said, you know, you have to integrate the church in order to heal. And I said, no, no way am I going to integrate it. The only way I'm surviving is my never looking. I've gone back to every place. I reconnected with almost every person, including Reverend's daughter. I've looked, appealed. I had to for me. Um, yeah, but now it is, it is me, but it's like me in a good way. Like, yes, there's this. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. And when I say to people, right, we're only as sick as our secrets. I'll share just about everything. As long as it's not about my current immediate family. Yeah. My body convulses at times, weirdly, because mm -hmm. someone else is going to go. I'm not the only one that that happens to. Right. Right. One who has these spasm attacks and doesn't like, you know, so yeah, that's yes. Our stories. Once we look at, in my theory, look at them, begin to heal from them, really play with them and then redefine them and share them in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Never know. You never know. I literally was on a Zoom for work, introducing ourselves and someone got a little personal. So then I told my story, a little bit of it. And then someone went to share next and someone else jumped in and a client. When my client said, I have to go next. I've grown up in a cult too. I never said that out loud. And I'm like, I, I have my business partner, right? That's why I do this. You never know. You never know what people have inside because we look fine on the outside. Right. Well, and so many things you just said there too that I want to hit on. I know we're running out of time, but you know, you're right. I mean, you'll you'll never not think first or act first at some point from that. And it's never going to be away from you. And, and neither will, you know, my depression. But we can be smarter at when we recognize those things and how we respond. So like I know immediately now, because one of the things I learned is that when I control my diet and my exercise, my depression is at bay, but when I don't have enough protein and so pr actually protein and fiber with me are the two things that if they are off, I can, it takes me very little time to start having um, issues. So I know now, and I know what my body tells me so I can react differently. So I agree. I also love that, that thought of, you know, for 90 seconds, you might be paralyzed or you might want to run, or you might want to, uh, you know, respond, you know, in a great way. But if you can get past that and recognize, you know, I think that's part of the deep breaths, you know, that's why I have yoga doc. He reminds me to take six deep breaths and then figure out if you still wanted to say that thing you wanted to say. <laughs> maybe you do <laughs> maybe you do and that's fine but then you're a choice right even yes. those even those worst parts of us are, they are helpful in certain situations at certain times the idea is to be and this is what i say to my clients all the time to be in choice with your aggression to be in choice with your directness to, to be in choice with your complying versus that's the only way you know how to respond yeah absolutely right for 
almost everything, probably not everything, right? Almost everything. It's like, like let's be clear, some things, but yeah. <laughs> and your last comment is, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. I think that's so pivotal is that, and it doesn't mean you have to, sh- everybody has to share everything with the whole world, but for, for that woman to say, I just need to share because I was in a cult and I never said that out loud. What freedom for her to say that. She's probably going to have to deal with it a little bit more if she's not ever said it out loud, but what a beautiful, safe environment to recognize that other people are willing to be vulnerable and share some of their secrets. And that if you feel compelled to do so, that you can find some release because you know, when you stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and continue to stuff and then stuff some more, and then you stand on it and jump on it and stuff it down some more. <laughs> some point in time, something's going to give. It's a lot better to be able to let some of that out yourself <laughs> instead of break the whole bag open in the middle of, you know, your life. Which is absolutely true, right? And one of the things I have noticed about trauma is that it's two dualities. One is shout it from the mountaintops don't tell a soul, right? Both there, right? And the yeah. other is, shut up. Other people have way so much worse than you. What are you talking about? And I am the most damaged, broken person in the whole wide world. Yeah. And like these go in the head, right? They go in my head. They, they go in other people's heads. And when I tell my story or hear someone else's story and realize I'm not alone, yeah. they dissipate a little bit. Or at least I have courage to go through them a little, like it just, it gives me a little bit more strength and ease, right? To be like, okay, that's all this is. Of course my brain does that. Okay, no big deal. Don't have to listen to it right now for a minute. I cannot listen to it. Right, absolutely. Ah, Lisa, my good, we could talk about everything all day. I just, um, I'm really appreciative of your story. I know we're gonna have all your contact information on the show notes, but in case somebody wants to look you up and I know you uh, gave it already, but I'm gonna say it again. How's, what's the best way for them to find you? So the easiest way to find me is literally to Google Lisa, L-I-S-A, Cohn, K-O-H-N. My writing website, which will take you to my work website as well, is Lisa Cohn Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S.com. All of my personal social handles are at Lisa Cohn Writes. You know, those are all the ways to find me. The business is Chatsworth Consulting Group or Thoughtful Leaders Blog, um, where we combine everything. But yes, I, I love talking to anyone who has anything to share, who has a story or wants to just say, yes, me too, that me too. I love it. Well, before we go, what are your last words of wisdom or pearls of advice for my listeners and viewers? Uh, Be nice to yourself, Mm. Be gentle with yourself, love yourself first, love yourself more, look for love in the world and find reasons to be happy. And the rest of it after that, falls into place or starts to fall into place. Nothing, right. There's no complete panacea, but it makes all the hard things for me. It makes all the hard things easier. And yeah, it just makes a lot of things go better with work and life. Well, we know that what we look for, we find. So we might as well be looking for the right things. I look for yellow birds all day long because nothing makes me smile like that, except maybe my kids. So yeah. I love it, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing your story and also your inspiration for what you do with leaders all around. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest today. Wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Shock Your Potential podcast. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com, including details on Michael's two best-selling books. Tell me more, how to ask the right questions and get the most out of your employees and sales mixology. 
why the most potent sales and customer experiences follow a recipe for success. Make sure to check out our Shock Your Potential app, on-demand professional training resources to help you excel in your career. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like us today.